0: Thank you for being with us this morning. What a beautiful morning to worship the Lord and be together as his body. It's been about a year that I have been your pastor and we have been meeting together as a church. Next Sunday, we celebrate our one-year anniversary. And with a picnic and a celebration, we hope that you're able to join us for that. And I was just reflecting on some things this week and the faithfulness of God. And we're gonna talk a lot more about this next week. But there's something I wanna share with you um, before we get into our text, our text is Psalm 8 this morning. But before we get there, I wanted to just say that something really hit me this week in my in my devotional time, and I, I want this to be an encouragement to you as well. Um, it is it is a great honor and privilege to be a pastor and to be an elder and to serve in the ways that God has given me to serve. And as much of a joy and a privilege as it is, it does come with a lot of weight and responsibility. And I was thinking about the the opportunities that I've had to help and to give instruction and to encourage the people in our church. And I was just thinking that if I myself am not daily in the Word of God, if I am not feeding myself beyond preparation, it's one thing to spend time in the Bible when I'm preparing for something. It's another thing to spend time in the Word of God just to feed my soul so that I have something to say. And I read this from Proverbs chapter 2, and I want to share this with you. I got to go old school. This is my old MacArthur, New King James, and I was reading this one this week. It was good. Listen to this from Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, so you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright and is a shield to those who walk uprightly. And I thought for all the times that I have the privilege of sitting down with you and listening and answering questions, if I don't have the word of God in me, I have nothing to say to you. And so I want to make a deal with you this morning. I want you as a congregation to hold me accountable to the word of God. And I am going to hold you accountable to the Word of God. As we meet together, as you get together with one another, as we corporately gather, how are we going to encourage one another if we are not being encouraged from the Word? How are you going to correct someone if you are not under the correction of God's Word? And how would we speak truth if we are not drinking from the fountain of all truth? My prayer for this church is that God would raise up hundreds of oak tree Christians that have their roots going down past despair, past trouble, past distraction, into the water of God's word. Would God be pleased to do that? And would we do this together as we enter another year of ministry, Lord willing, this is my prayer, that God would make us people of the book. That's not the sermon for today. That was just something from my own time, and I I want that. I really want that. I'm not just saying that to sound humble or to sound whatever. I want you to hold me accountable to the word, and I'll do the same for you. So let's open our Bibles now to Psalm chapter 8. We're going through the Psalms this summer, and we're going to get to about Psalm 11, but for today, we're in Psalm 8, so please open up. It's right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm chapter 8, and we will read and pray and get into our text for this morning. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Pray with me. Father, as we come now to this text and we come together and ask that you would be pleased to do a work, would you please do it, Lord? Come and by your Spirit, reveal what you want us to hear this morning. I have designs, I have intentions, but Lord, all of that is meaningless unless you come and work. So please, take the word that is preached, the word that is heard, and implant it deep within our hearts, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And would you be pleased in our worship of the word this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What we have here in Psalm 2 are two examples of the majesty of God. We see two creative examples. And then, along with each of those, we have a contrast. So I want to look at both of those examples in their context and show you what I think is going on here. And then we're going to look at some other passages moving towards the New Testament that show us that the principles of Psalm 8 continue. This isn't isolated to this one section of Scripture, but these are principles that go all through the Bible and are for our good. So we'll see what Jesus does. Jesus quotes this psalm in Matthew, as well as the Apostle Paul continues this theme. So let's start at the beginning. You're going to notice in Psalm 8 that the whole psalm is bracketed with the same statement, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We see it at the beginning, same phrase at the end. When you see that kind of repetition, that kind of bracketing, you can say, okay, we know the beginning, we know the end, and the middle is telling us how that happens. Okay, so hang with me for that. The phrase, O Lord, our Lord, both a double noun, and we know, or maybe you don't know, in Hebrew poetry... Repetition was a tool they used to emphasize something. If you wanted to draw attention and you're writing Hebrew poetry, which is what the Psalms are, and you want to really hammer a point home, you repeat a phrase or you repeat a word. Therefore, we have Isaiah 6, where we see God is holy, holy, holy. We're supposed to get it. So when you see words repeated, know that it is for emphasis. It's for our understanding. But this is also a term of intimacy. O Lord, our Lord. That's going to get distracting after a while. Even though God has set his glory above the heavens, as we're going to see in the next phrase, God is near. He is our Lord who is involved and personal. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, why do you think David draws attention to the name of God? Why didn't he just say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic are you in all the earth? Why the name? Names were of utmost importance in the ancient Near East. So David draws attention to the name of God rather than just to God himself to draw attention to the fact that God wants to be known. (laughs) God acts in redemptive history. He does things in a very public way so that his name is recognized. And when people around say, who did that? Oh, it was the God. It was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And his name was known and his name was feared. God acts on behalf of his name. Culturally, This still happens, maybe not as much as it used to, but your name is very significant. Right? If you were in a certain family or you were in a certain clan, there was significance that was given simply because of the name. And this significance of name is especially true when it comes to the name of God. The Bible is clear in telling us that the name of God is precious and holy, Which is why one of the Ten Commandments is that you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Listen to how the Old Testament talks. I, really, I want to focus on this because I think it's, it's really important, at least for a minute. Listen to how the Old Testament speaks about the name of God. And you can write these down or turn here with me. In Exodus chapter 9, the plagues are in full force in Egypt. Do you remember this? So God is sending these plagues as judgment on Egypt because Pharaoh is not letting the people go. But why is God doing it? Why the extended length of plagues? God tells Moses, Exodus 9, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, done all the stuff, brought Moses into Egypt, done all the works that he's done, for this reason, to show you my power and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God has purposed that his name be great in all the world, not just a small part of it. Therefore, he acts in a public way. God does not hide what he does. Malachi chapter 1, uh, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun... To its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In Psalm 138, one of the greatest reasons that we hear for worshiping the name of the Lord is this. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So why does the psalmist worship? Why does he bow down? Because God exalts his name. God is holy. His name is holy. And as Christians, we should never Tolerate the flippant use of God's name. Ever. It is so common in our culture to hear the name of God taken in vain. You can't even listen to the news without hearing that. And it is sin. The name of God is holy, it is magnified, it is majestic in all the earth. Why would we defame God by treating it flippantly? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist now says that you have set your glory above the heavens. And the heavens here are referring to the created things, the things that we see. We know this from reading on in verse 3 in the psalm when he talks about the moon and the stars. And I think that in this text, when God says he has set his glory on high, it's not that he's trying to keep it from us. He's not trying to hide it or get it out of the way. This is an exaltation. This is a putting things on display. He has set his glory far above the heavens, not to get it out of our reach, but so that it can be clearly seen. What if I took my pen or my Bible or whatever and I put it down on the floor? Some of you in the room could see it if you're close enough. Probably those in the back couldn't. What if I put it up on top of a ladder or a stool or up on the table? Right? You elevate something so that you can see it better. And that's what God is doing here with his glory, or Psalm 19:1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. God is not into hiding his glory, he is into displaying his glory. This isn't God taking his glory and and, and putting it like on the top shelf like you would with a kid and keeping your cookies away from them or a spouse. This is God putting his glory on full display that we would see and worship him. The point of verse 1, here it is, I've been talking for a few minutes. Here's the point of verse 1, I think. It's for us to get a big, magnificent picture of who God is and what he has done, which makes the contrast in verse 2 that much more absurd Look at verse 2. So we we just got this picture of God, majestic in all the world. He's created, He's glorious. Now, what do we see? Verse 2 Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Babies? I mean, at first glance, this verse seems a little out of place. And the babies never come back, they're just there and then they're gone. So what's going on with the babies? Okay, this is what we need to find out. This is, this is our number one job this morning, is to find out what's going on with the babies. The, the point is to make contrast. We know that the Bible uses this over and over again. You see something, and then you see something so different that it helps you to understand these are not the same. There is a vast difference between almighty, holy, creator God, and an infant That's what's going on here in this verse. What could be more polar opposite from God than a helpless, tiny baby? I'm going to give it away right now, but the goal of this psalm is to help us to see that God uses weak, marginalized, insignificant things to accomplish His purpose. And his will. And we're going to see that through two of these contrasts. He is a huge, strong, majestic God. He could have acted any way he wants to. And yet the psalm tells us he establishes strength out of the mouths of the most unlikely source. And that's what he does to accomplish his purpose. Humanly speaking, it's hard-pressed to find anything more helpless than an infant, right? As cute as they are, as cuddly as they are, they are absolutely 100% dependent on their parents, on the people around them. And of course, this is meant to be metaphorical, right? When it says that God establishes strength from the mouths of babies, it wasn't like there was a little army of babies crawling around defeating the enemies of God. Okay, this is a picture Although we do still have the infantry in the military. I think that's another, that's another sermon. We'll get to that next week. We're going to come back to this. But now let's continue reading. Okay, Continue reading verse 3 of Psalm 8. Follow along, please. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. Again, I think that this section is helping us to see a contrast, a difference, a separation. David says that the created universe... With all of its galaxies. And he specifically refers to what we see in the heavens. Which I think is really interesting. The moon and the stars that you made with your mighty... Nope, he says fingers. Now of course God is a spirit. He does not have flesh and bone like you and I do. So what's the point? The point is to tell us... That God is so powerful that it took no effort to create. What could you do with your thumb and your finger? You think you could crush a marble? How about an acorn? How much strength do we have in our fingers compared to the rest of our body? Not much. So the point of seeing when David says, when I look at this magnificent creation, the moon, the stars, there's meteors, there's planets, there's all kinds of things. And he says, it's the work of your fingers. The point is to show us the very little effort that it took for God to do this and to make us realize he is so unlike we are. He is so big. David goes on from here and quotes from Genesis 2. So he's, he's making this contrast And then he fills in some of this about mankind. And so we have huge, almighty, creator God, and then we have man. And he quotes from Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind has been placed on the earth to honor God by caring for and being stewards of the world that he has given to us. To have dominion over the rest of the created world as representatives of God. I've mentioned this before, but whenever God puts us in a position of having some kind of authority, some kind of purpose, whatever, it's never about us. It's always about the giver of the gift, God. So when we see here that man has been placed on the earth, has been given dominion over the created world, we shouldn't stick our thumbs in our suspenders and say, hey, we have some pretty great authority here. Let's use it. We should say, what an unbelievable God, who although he is holy and mighty and far beyond us, he chooses to use the most weak to accomplish his purpose. God has crowned mankind with glory and honor more than anything else that he created. Now, there is a lot of unbelievably glorious things in God's creation. If you have ever spent time outside, you know this. From the animal kingdom, to the plant kingdom, to the water, to the geography, everything, there is unbelievable glory in what God has made. And yet, because mankind are created in the image of God, unlike any other part of God's creation, we have been given a special honor, a special glory. But even with that honor, even with that glory, compared to God, we are the babies of verse 2. Compared to God, there is nothing extra special about us apart from Him. The dominion the authority, the responsibility that God gives does not reflect our value and worth. It reflects the greatness of our God. Don't mix those up. Don't get those backwards where you start to think that as humankind we intrinsically have this value and this worth because we're so good at what we do. That is not the case. God has placed us here to humbly serve Him. Who does things this way? (laughs) I was just thinking about this and I was looking at these contrasts this week and how God, although he could do anything and he does whatever he pleases, he chooses to do things in such an unusual way from our perspective. Why? Why does he act this way? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. We are simply weak stewards of a majestic God. So we see these contrasts here. We see that God has created, that he is glorious, that he is powerful, and yet he establishes strength out of infants, figuratively speaking. We saw that he has created the world with his fingers, meaning that he has not put a lot of effort into it, and yet he makes man the crown of his creation. And he makes man the steward. So the principle here is that God uses weakness to accomplish his purpose. God uses weakness to accomplish his purpose. What I want to do is show a couple of New Testament examples of how this continues to be a theme in the scriptures. And I'm not ignoring the rest of this. The rest of the psalm is telling us about the scope of the dominion that mankind has over birds and fish and things in the air and things in the water. But I don't think that's the main point. The main point here that I want to focus on is that God uses weakness to accomplish his purpose. And that's really encouraging for us. And we're going to see why. So first, I want to show you something from Matthew chapter 21. You can turn here or just write it down. Matthew 21, we read about the events of what we now call Palm Sunday. Okay, when Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone goes crazy right? They're, they're singing they're singing praises to God calling him the son of David all these kinds of things and as per usual the religious leaders get really upset and they're upset because Jesus is acting the way that Jesus usually acts you'd think that they would get this after a while but they didn't And so listen to how Jesus responds to this. He comes into the city. People are praising him. They're throwing their coats down on the ground. They're just acting in these ways and the religious leaders are like, this is not right. Something's not right here. Listen to what Jesus says. This is Matthew 21, starting in verse 14. This will give a little context. I'm going to start just a little early here. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were upset. And they said to Jesus, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says to them, Yes. Haven't you ever read, and then he quotes Psalm 8, Out of the mouths of infants, and nursing babies you have prepared praise. I mean, for one thing, to say to a scribe who has literally memorized the entire Old Testament, haven't you ever read? A little bit of irony there. God established his kingdom through the weakness of human flesh. Jesus Christ releases his rightful place as the son of God and condescends to the world takes on flesh and that is how God establishes his kingdom through weakness and he responds to these religious leaders and quotes from Psalm 8 and he says this is how God works this is it they got it right God doesn't come looking for strength and power. He accomplishes His purposes through weakness of all things. He will establish praise from the mouths of babies and infants to show His glory. This is amazing. We could also go to the Apostle Paul, who shows us how this theme of majesty through weakness continues into the New Testament. I want to read from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Listen to what Paul says. For consider your calling, brothers. Calling means coming into the family of God, coming to faith in Jesus in this context. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 26, 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God choose the weak and the foolish to accomplish his purpose? Even though he could have done whatever he wanted and he does, why does he do things this way? To demonstrate his power, his glory, and his sufficiency. You know what sufficiency means? He possesses everything. He does not lack anything. Therefore, he can choose to act in whatever way he he wants. God has set things up this way. He uses weakness. He establishes strength through infants, as it were, to show that he alone is good. He alone is powerful. He alone is magnificent in all the earth. And we, as stewards of his creation, humbly serve in the strength that he gives us. It's First Peter 4. So can you see this theme going all the way through? Psalm 8, we could go backwards from Psalm 8. We could look at people like Moses who stuttered. He had a speech problem. He hated speaking in front of people. And yet God says, I am going to free millions of my people from Egypt by you. God works through weakness to accomplish his purposes. 2 Corinthians 12 Paul is going through some kind of physical problem. Don't know what it is. Three times he prays that God would remove it. Paul wasn't a wimp. He'd been through a lot. So this must have been a pretty bad ailment. And he prays that God would take this away. And what does God say to him? Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. How unusual is it to boast in weakness? When we pick teams, when you establish a group of people to accomplish something, you don't go around and look for the most unqualified, unlikely candidate. You put the best, the strongest, the smartest. It's not the way God works. Because if that were the case, we could take credit for that. But as it is, God works through weakness so that he, without any doubt, is the one who is responsible. He is the one who gets glorified. He is the one who is praised. Do you feel weak today? There's times when we all do. There's times when we feel inadequate. There's times when you have more to do than you know you can get done. You feel insufficient for the task at hand. God works there. God works there. I know that many of us are dealing with relational hurt separation, estrangement, whatever, and you have talked and you have prayed and you have pleaded and you have done everything and you just feel powerless to do anything. Guess what? You, you can't do anything. You're weak. I am weak. But that is precisely where God works. In our weakness. He establishes strength through weakness. He establishes His own praise Through weakness. Or perhaps you're coming off of a week that was really discouraging. Maybe you don't feel like you fit in anywhere and you see everybody else using their giftings and and doing things and you say, I don't know, I don't have anything to give. God works there. That's not an opportunity to despair, that's an opportunity to hope. Psalm 8 is for you. To see that God works through the most unlikely candidates to accomplish His purpose, you see, God does not look at the world and find the most qualified, the most strong, the most put together person to accomplish His will. What does He look for? There's a couple things the Bible tells us: humility, weakness. Psalm 51 says, A broken and contrite heart you will not despise, O God. Most of us try desperately to live in our own strength. We just do. That's the human nature, to want to do and accomplish and do everything in our own strength. But you know what? That is not the purpose of God. God works through our weakest points. And He can establish praise and strength from anything. So take heart. God will redeem your weakness. God will redeem the time and will use that to glorify Himself and to accomplish exactly what He wants from your life. This is not the direction I was going to go with this psalm, by the way, when I first started this week. There are some really amazing implications of this psalm when we get into the book of Hebrews. And if you want to know that, I would be happy to sit down. But I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to say this because we need to hear it. We are so bent to try to do it on our own. And I just want to tell you this morning, stop it. Quit trying to live your life in your own strength. It is exhausting and you won't make it. But God delights to work in our weakness to accomplish his strength. So trust him to do that. Trust Him. Ask Him. You feel weak? Good. That's exactly where God wants you so that He can work, that He can accomplish His purposes. And you know what? Probably the attribute of God that I love the most is His faithfulness. So when you come to God and say, God, I feel weak. I feel inadequate. I don't have the strength to do what you're calling me to do. He says, yes! That is right where I want you. And he works because he's faithful. Don't treat your weakness like a defect. It is exactly what God has for you. And he will work. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We do not understand, Father, why you plan things this way, why you operate this way. I do not know. But I am so thankful that I do not have to be strong in myself, but that you will take me in my weakness, in my failings, in my inadequacy, and use me for your own purpose. Please do it. Please come this morning, Lord, and minister to our hearts. For those who are just feeling dragged down and weak and helpless, God, strengthen them. Help them to know that they are not there by accident, but you have brought them to this place so that the demonstration of your power will be so clear. We are so desperate for your help, God. Please come and work through the ministry of your word and through your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.